thanks for being here, okay? Thursday night, we love it here. We love Thursdays at Eastside. Um, we just love coming. Great to see you all. Um, man, our online people all over the place, we hear stories every week. And so just thanks for checking us out and being here. And we're just glad to have you in the house of God. And I was thinking about, I know, I, I know that I probably exaggerate on some of these things sometime, but somebody asked me earlier today, uh, what do you preach on? And, and I, I said this to them. I said, if I could pick one sermon, okay, I ain't preaching yet, so don't be starting a clock on me. If I, if I, <laughs> if I could preach one sermon to the church, the church on the whole, the kingdom of God on this earth. If I, if I had one sermon to preach, one, it'd be this one. So you came at the right time to be able to hear this, one sermon. I don't know if I'm gonna do very good at it. I don't know if it'll make any sense, but I know what it's supposed to say. And if I had one sermon, this would be it, okay? So would you tell your neighbor, this is it, this is it right here, okay? So my hope is it gets out, and I really do pray for that, that as many people as possible can hear what God has to say that I wanna show you in his word. So, are you ready, huh? Is anybody ready? All right, good, good, good crap. Charles Swindoll, Chuck Swindoll wrote a lot of books, and one of the books he wrote about three decades ago had one of my favorite titles of all time. I love the book and the title was this, Living Above the Edge of Mediocrity. Living Above the Edge of Mediocrity. I love that title. I've always loved that title because mediocrity, if you think about that word a little bit, it kind of gives this feeling of just kind of, you know, just kind of get by, okay? It's, it's not terrible, it's not, not horrible, but man, just so much less than what it could be. Uh, a mediocre, mediocrity, man, that is minimal thinking. And if you know me, man, I detest that. I hate that. I like maximum possibility. And so I loved that title where he talked about this idea of living above the edge of mediocrity. I mean, think what it would be like. This kind of Play with that in your head a little bit. If somehow we got almost the whole society to live above the line of minimum, just to search and strive for everything that life can be. It reminds me of the great quote from Leo Burnett. When you reach for the stars, you might not quite get one, but you won't come up with a handful of mud either. So this whole idea of what it would be like to live above Mediocre. Man, I just have always loved the title of that book. In the book, Swindoll kind of presented the idea that we're living in a world, however, that is okay with mediocre. It is okay to be under the line of men. That, that's the world we live in. And he cited a study that was done by a psychologist that I have never forgotten. I went back this week and I reread it and kind of brushed up on it a little bit. And this psychologist told about this study that was done at this university where the professor took groups of 10 people and only 10 people came into the room at one time. He did several groups of 10, but there were only 10 to start with. And what the professor did was he had up on the board three lines of different links. And I kind of brought an example of that right here. I got three lines, all have different links. 
And so the professor brought 10 people in and uh, where they were gonna ask him a question about those lines. And the purpose of this study was to find out if people would just follow the crowd if they would just kind of fit in with the crowd. And so he brought them in, had them all set together, 10 of them, and the secret of the experiment was he was going to ask them, which is the longest line? So if you're one of the 10, you're sitting in the classroom, you see this, and the only thing he's gonna be asked you is when he points to the longest line, say, that's the longest line, raise your hand. Now here was the trick of the whole experiment. Nine of the 10 were secretly told. So one was never told this. Only nine were secretly told, vote for the second longest line. So when we say the second longest line, then you raise your hand and say, that's the longest line. And so they brought these groups of 10 people in. And again, nine of them know about it. One of them don't know what's going on. And the professor would go to the board and he would start by pointing to the shortest line and no hands went up. And then he would go to the next line and point there and nine hands went up saying that's the longest line. Let me read for you the, uh, the, the summary of the study that was written in this research. Nine hands raise and vote for the wrong line. The stooge would typically glance around and frown in confusion and slowly slip his hand up with the group. And the instructions were repeated and tried again with a different set of lines. Same thing happens. Time after time, the self-conscious stooge would sit there saying a short line is longer than a long line simply because he lacked the courage to challenge the group. Now listen to this last line. This remarkable conformity occurred in 75% of the cases. Amazing. Now, the Bible teaches, and you might not know about this, that there is an avenue, a means of which you can live beyond mediocrity. There is a way to do that, and the way you do that, listen carefully, is develop an attitude where you are more interested in being right than popular. And if you can figure out how to do that, that that which drives you in life is, dude, I want to be right, and you're not driven by what is popular. And you and I are going to find that out in this study as we take a second bite of an elephant. If you're here last week, you know what that's about. If it's your first time here, you're going, what is going on here? Because we're in this cool study here that we've really been looking forward to here at Eastside, where we're looking at one of the most important passages of Scripture in the whole Bible, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And because of its significance, we're calling it an elephant, okay? Elephant size. Not because there's a lot of words and a lot of verses. There are only two verses that we're looking at. It's elephant in reference to its impact. Because these two verses summarize the path of life that God has called us to live. 
Now, in order to get the full impact of these two verses, what I suggested last weekend is that we've got to take them a little bit at a time. We've got to take a little bite at a time of this whole elephant. So we're going to take five bites, five weekends in this study through this two-verse passage. Now, because we're taking five weeks, I want us to become really familiar uh, with the text itself. So we're going to read it every week. And I want to start out with uh, Romans 12, and we'll read verses 1 through 2, just like we did last week, just like we will over the next three weeks. So let me read it. You can follow on the screen, and then we're going to take another bite of it. Chapter 12, verse 1, written by Paul to the Roman church. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, I want you to hear this. There's something really important I want you to catch this. And it's all gonna come together at the end of the message. I promise that it will. Watch this. The first bite of something will always determine the taste of every other bite. Now, here's what I mean by that. This is really, really important. If you take a, a spoon and take a, a, a big old scoop of peanut butter and you take a bite of peanut butter and now your mouth has that peanut butter feel inside of it and you taste that peanut butter and you do it again and take a second bite of that, that's not second time going to taste like pepperoni pizza, is it, huh? Because the first bite will determine the flavor of bites after. And that happens in this text. That happens right here. And so what I'm saying is that when we take a second bite here this evening as we look at that, a message that I think is the most powerful message for our church right now, this time, at this moment in culture, what we're going to find out is it tastes a whole lot like the first bite. Because the flavor of the first bite that we took last week will be the same flavor that we will taste this evening. That is incredibly important to hear that. Now, if you will, uh, I, I wanna ask, ask you to let me jump off a tangent here for a minute and because it gives me an opportunity to talk to you about a pet peeve that I have. And I, I, I wanna ask you to humbly receive this uh, from me as, as one of our pastors here. here. Here at Eastside, we intentionally teach the word of God through series, that's what we call them. They're usually three, four, five, or six weeks long. They're series teaching, and they are all connected to each other. Same thing I'm talking about right now when I say the flavor of the first bite will determine the flavor of the second bite. So we do that all year. And every once in a while, we call it a standalone teaching time. But that happens hardly ever. Most of the time, it is in series. And so I'm kind of taking a tangent from what I want to talk about today for a minute, just so you can hear me talk about a pet peeve. Because we do that here at Eastside, that is why it is so important that you're consistent in your worship. That's why it's so important. 
And you know, I talk about it all the time. I post about it all the time. It is so critically important. Not only does the Bible talk about that, but it's a big deal here at Eastside. Because if, if you're a person that just kind of misses uh, weekends every once in a while and you just kind of hit and miss, you're constantly coming in here and you're not knowing what's going on. It is incredibly important. And so I just want to throw that out to you. I want to encourage you to make that your goal. Um, there are some of you that that's your next, okay, in our vision. What is your next in your spiritual journey with God? That's your next. And, and if you don't know, ask me because I'll tell you who y'all are about that, okay? That might be your next. So make that a consistent thing. If you can't be here, then watch online, but make sure you catch that. So we jump in this here in this study. And we, we're, 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 we're jumping in the second bite and we realize we're gonna carry the flavor of the first bite. So because of that, because all bites come back to the first one, it is, it, it, it is it, it's almost impossible to understand the second bite until you go back to the first one and remind yourself about it. And so last weekend when we started this, we, we took the very first bite with the opening words, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifice. That was the first part of that, that text. And if you're here, you know what it's all about. And, and if you weren't, man, go online and watch it. But the basic summary of it, the whole gist of the first bite is that Paul has been using the book of Romans chapters 1 through 11 to explain that we cannot live exactly how God wants us to live. We just can't do it. We can try and try and try and we'll never get there. And, that, and that's, why, that's why Neil was just spot on in his communion thought today that we just can't do it. It just can't happen. And so what does God do? You were all here last week, well, what did he do? He just feels sorry for us and he just gives us mercy anyway. Gives us grace, gives us salvation, gives us favor, gives us blessing. He sits back and looks at us and says, dude, you ain't never gonna be able to do that. So I'm just gonna give that to you. Now in view of that, because he's graceful, because he's done that, then my life then is a response to that of gratitude. That I live my life in a way that God wants me to live my life, not so that he'll be impressed. Not so that he'll say, okay, finally, you've done enough good things, I'm gonna let you in heaven. Now we don't do anything to earn anything, we do it because we are in gratitude and, and in humility about how awesome he has been in our life. And so we surrender our bodies as living sacrifices. We give every part of our body, every part of our life belongs to him. And that means some things need to be put to death, some things need to be buried. So that was all last week, that's the first flavor. So we walk in here today and we're coming on the heels of what we tried to teach last week. And, and forgive me for spending all the time going back because you can't go forward until you get that part in the back understood. And so we kind of summarize the first bite with this idea. Because we've been given righteousness, okay? Don't forget that. You gave it, okay? He gave it to you out of mercy and pity. So because he did that for us, we choose to live righteously in order to honor the righteous one. So we're just living our Christian lives 
as our way of saying, thank you for what you did, because we wouldn't have a prayer, we wouldn't have chance unless you did what you did, so we're just gonna live our life to honor you. That is all first bite of the elephant. And now we arrive at this point, and we're ready to take a second bite, and you will notice a connection to it, because the second bite comes on the heels of that first phrase, and it has these words, holy and pleasing to God. And so what that is doing, if we just took that right now and didn't even think about the first bite, you would be saying, okay, what are we talking about today? Well, now that makes sense. Because of what he did, because of his mercy, in view of the fact that he gave Jesus on the cross so that we are saved and we're forgiven and we're full of mercy and grace, not because we're awesome, but because he's loving and caring and kind. Because of all of that, we're going to live our life in a way that says we are thankful to you. We want to honor you because of who you are. So how are you going to do that? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to live holy and pleasing to God. And so you take that phrase right there, that second bite, and you say, okay, let's jump down into that, and let's really find out what that really means. So check out this idea of pleasing God. What in the world would it mean for your life and my life to bring pleasure to God? What would you have to do in your life for God to look at you and smile? That's good stuff. What would have to happen in your life? Now, I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a doctor. I, you know, I don't have those kind of credentials. But I know, just like all of us do, we've heard these things, that there are certain chemicals um, in our noggins. We all got these certain chemicals in here. Everybody has them, and they're kind of stuck in our brain somewhere. And these certain chemicals, they have certain names to them. There are four or five that are really, really important that are in your brain and my brain too. And when those things get released, we feel a sense of pleasure. We're happy and we're satisfied and, and we feel good and we're kind of calm and at peace and just, it's that euphoria that you feel, man, life is good right now. And whenever you feel that, that's literally because those things are being released in your brain in some way. After living a few years on this earth and observing people like I do and kind of looking at my own life, I've discovered that the release valve that lets those things things out, they are different for different people. So what might get your juices going in your brain may not do anything for me at all. And what does it for me, you might say, dude, that would put me in, in, a, in the nursing home or something. We come up with different ways to release the chemicals, okay? So one person might sense an overwhelming calm, just ah, as they are snuggled in a sleeping bag inside a tent staked to the ground in the middle of the night. Some people do ah, and there might be somebody else that says, if I ain't got a soft pillow at the Marriott, I ain't happy, right, okay? So it's just different things. One one person might want to work with a team of people and interact with people all the time. Uh, some of y'all in this room, and you just want people around you. And somebody else might say, can you just keep the people away from me? Huh? You know anybody like that? And because different things release the chemicals. Might, one person might say, I want a juicy hamburger, man. I want cheese dripping all over it. And some
somebody else might say, can I have one of them fancy salads where you got like little grass and clumps of stuff? Those people are delusional, by the way. But you have different things, okay? So different things release the chemical. They just, they just shoot it out and you think, man, that feels so good. And watch this. Every one of us, every single person in this room, every one of us wake up every morning hoping that the chemical be released. And we'll have that pleasure, that euphoria. Tell you something I told a few of my close friends. I said, I'll never say this publicly, but it's starting to leak out, so I'm going to tell my part of it. A few weeks ago, my, my son invited me to come play golf at his golf course. He lives in Lexington, so I had some buddies of mine, and we drove over there uh, to Lexington. We pulled into his his uh, golf course, we pull in the, the parking lot. And when we pull in, I'm driving and I look over and I see my son, I see his wife, and they got the two most beautiful little daughters, my granddaughters in the universe. And they're having lunch there and I see them and they see Papa's car coming in the, the, the parking lot and they get, ah, Papa's here. And I saw him and man, I wanted to see him. So I, you know, I jump out of the car and I go over and I'm holding my, my granddaughters and, and they used to tell me years ago, some of y'all get this, and some of y'all think, would you just shut up? But some of y'all get this. They used to say about, man, when you're a grandparent, it is a euphoria, you know. I, yeah, 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 now I know, okay, I know. And so I ran over there, and I'm holding them and playing with them and everything, man, so excited to see them. And finally I said, okay, Papa's gotta go play golf. So I put them down, we got my golf clubs, put them on the cart, we take off, we play golf for four and a half hours, and then we come back when we're done, we're going to the parking lot, and I was so excited excited to see my granddaughters, I forgot to turn my car off. And my car had been running for four and a half hours in this parking lot. There it is, it's still running. Now thank God gas doesn't cost much right now. <laughs> and uh, I was so excited to see them and release the euphoric chemicals that I just forgot to turn the silly car off. We, we get in the car and one of my, it was blistering hot that day. We get in the car, one of my buddies says, man, your car cools off fast. I said, I'm telling you, it's unbelievable air conditioner. So different things just kind of release the euphoria and we go through life trying to get that to happen. All of us do in different ways. We're all trying to get it to happen to us. And God made us that way. He made us with this yearning for satisfaction, for happiness, for euphoria. And we go throughout life looking for it. And if we don't find it, watch this, because this will be painful. If we don't find it, we often will find it in the wrong places that gives short-term gain with long-term pain. Am I right? And sometimes we sink into depression over because we get it. So everybody in the room right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about pleasure, when I talk about what that, what that euphoria feels like. Now watch, watch this. Watch this. When Paul writes Romans chapter 12, he says, remember first, first bite? In view of his mercy, 
in view of the fact that God gave me grace and forgiveness and righteousness, when I've done everything I can to get it, I just can't get there. And he says, here, man, I'm going to give it to you anyway. In view of that, when that sinks in to your soul, and I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, I heard that before in churches, you know, about forgiveness. I, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in view of his mercy, when it gets down here and it starts messing with you a little bit and you are overwhelmed at the mercy of God in your life and how he loves you in spite of the fact that you're not always lovable. And so when that gets down and starts churning in your heart, the apostle Paul says this, watch this, this is second bite stuff that something happens to you. Something happens when the mercy of God grips your heart. And what happens is a transition, a transformation, a, a change, a turn. And what occurs is that I am no longer passionate about the release of my own pleasure. I am now passionate about the release of his pleasure. If you wanna know if the mercy and the love and the grace of God has changed your life, if you really wanna know that, here's what Paul would say. It has impacted you so much that you are more interested in the pleasure of God than your own pleasure. And when that happens to you, there is something that begins to occur in every circumstance of your life. No matter what you experience, no matter what you're facing, your guts, your immediate thought is not what's going to release those chemicals in my brain and make me feel satisfied. That's not your initial thought. Your initial thought is, how can I react to this circumstance in a way that will bring those chemical releases in the brain of God? What can make God pleased? And so instead of impulsively saying, when we talk about debates that we're having in our society today, well, this is exactly what I think about that debate. Instead of doing that, your gut reaction, your go-to is, I wonder what God thinks about that. Because you're not thinking about what you think, you're thinking about what he thinks. That's a life living in view of God's mercy, seeking his pleasure more than ours. And instead of trying to manage an overly busy schedule with a million things you got going on and got to get done, we instead put God first in the schedule, and then we figure out a way to make everything else fit around him. That's living a life in view of God's mercy, seeking his pleasure more than ours. And instead of reacting in the flesh when somebody's unkind to us, oh yeah, you treat me that way? Here's how I'll treat you. Instead of doing that immediately, we yield to the instructions that God gave us when we have those relationship issues. That's a life living in view of God's mercy, seeking his pleasure more than ours. Instead of laying our head on the pillow at night, that many of us will do in just a few hours, and we'll base the mood that we go to sleep tonight Thinking, was it a good day? Did I have a good day? Was the release of chemicals happening today in my brain that you, instead of that, you're wondering, I wonder if he had a day that was good 
because of the way that I lived my day. That is living a life in view of God's mercy, seeking his pleasure more than ours. And so Dave, what's the second bite? The second bite is that my drive that which is dictating how I live my life, that, that fuel within me, that drive is that I am first and foremost concerned about his pleasure, not mine. Now, if you understand that, then it brings the reality of an obvious question. Then how in the world do we please God? How would you please God? How would you get God to look at you and say, you have made me full of pleasure. How do, how do you do that? Well, Paul answered that. He answered that by saying, live a holy life. Now, now please catch me because we're starting to put the jigsaw pieces together. So in view of his mercy, in view of what he did for me, even though I don't deserve it, I can't ever get there. He still gave it to me because he loves me. He's tender with me. Because of that, man, I'm going to live my life in a way where his pleasure, more important than my pleasure. How are you going to do that? I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be holy. Now, just so everybody knows what we mean by holy, so we're all on the same page, I brought a... Uh, what do you call those? Object lessons. I brought an object lessons. I brought a sleeve of golf balls. And you all might say, would you quit talking about golf? Hey, gang, that's all I got. I got golf in the Bible. That's all I got. I got some grandkids. Once in a while, they're worth talking about. But that's all I got. So watch, watch this real carefully because you'll never forget this. I, I promise you never forget this. So I brought a sleeve of golf balls. There's three golf balls in here. If you're a golfer, you know some of the stuff I'm going to do here in a minute. If you're not, you, you just impress me and go, ooh, that's cool. Okay. So I'm going to pull a golf ball out. This is called a Strixon golf ball. It's pretty good. Not the best golf ball out there, but pretty good golf ball. Okay. So we pull out and we got a Strixon golf ball right here. Okay. So camera see that? There you go. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to pull out another one. And, uh, and that one also is a Strixon golf ball. Same golf ball, really good golf ball. I hit this once in a while and uh, hit about three times and I never see it again because it's swimming somewhere, but that's uh, it's a pretty good golf ball. Okay. Now I'm going to pull out another golf ball. And uh, that also is a Strixon golf ball, uh, same kind of golf ball, exactly golf ball. But that is a Domestus. That is a holy Strixon golf ball. You know why it's holy? Because it's different. And that is exactly what the word holy means in the Bible. It refers to something that is not like everybody else. And so the reason this is a holy golf ball is because it is distinct, it is different than the other two. And now the picture of Romans 12 in the second bite is starting to make sense. That in view of his mercy, in view of what God did for us, in a response of gratitude, thanksgiving, love to a father that's more merciful than will ever be because of who you are and what you've done for me, I want to live my life in a way that brings you pleasure. I'm focused on your pleasure, God, not my pleasure. And here's how I'm going to do it. I will be Different. 
Remember what I said earlier when I said if I had one message for the kingdom of God, for the church in the contemporary culture in which we live, one message, what would it be to the church? What would it be people who follow Jesus like you and I? What's the one message? God has called you to be different. Different than who? Different than what? When you come two weeks from now, which you will because we talked about being consistent and you're a wonderful church, okay? You will hear the fourth bite talk about not following, don't miss this, the pattern of the world. If I live a holy life, it means that I am different from the pattern of the world. That God is pleased when his children reject the pattern of the world and boldly live by a different plan. The pleasure of God is released if there are chemicals in his brain that make him feel good, they're on maximum overload when nine people raise their hand up to say that a short line is longer than a long line because everybody's saying that today. And God then is pleased when the holy person, the different person, keeps their hand down. Don't miss this because it is always better to be right than popular. And when you live that way as an expression of your gratitude to a merciful God, you know what happens? The pleasure of God is exploding. See, that might be why the Bible refers to God as holy over and over and over. And whenever you see that in the Bible, all that it's saying is God is different, God is distinct, God isn't anything like anybody else. He is alone, completely different from everybody. Look at a few of them, Joshua brings it up. He said he is a holy God, he's different, he's totally different. Look at the next verse. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is different. He's distinct, he's holy. David makes that clear in the psalm. Even in the book of Revelation when they're talking about people singing in God, look what they're singing in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Even in heaven we are recognizing that you are somebody that nobody else is like. And when you understand the holiness of God that's talked about from cover to cover, then it starts making sense of all the places in the Bible, almost equally mentioned in significance, that if he is holy, then anybody who follows him also must be holy. Look at the places that I just pulled as an example. Therefore be holy, God says, because I am holy. If I'm holy, you gotta be holy. Look at another verse. For God did not call us to be impure. He called us to live a holy life, a different life, a life that looks nothing like anybody in the world. We are different Christians. Look at this next one. You ought to live holy and godly lives, Peter said. 
Why is this the message of the day for the church? Why is that? Because we Christians are so caught up in being like everybody else. And so if I'm losing my holiness, my distinction, and I've molded into the pattern of the world, I have taken away the pleasure of God. That God is most pleased when you choose to be right and not worried about being popular. So here's the lesson of the second bite. This is what I think we need to hear. The pleasure of God increases as the distinction of his children increases. And so just kind of play around with that for yourself in your own heart, your own evaluation of yourself. Would your family or your closest friends or the people you work with or maybe the people you go to school with, or the people who know you well, would they say that you are distinct? Or do you look and sound like everybody does? The pleasure of God has called us to be different. I'm reminded of the old story that made its way for a number of years, and then because technology and, and, and different ways of communication came along that we have today, that you don't hear that story very often. I've, I've used this story for years and years, but you can't talk about it anymore because it doesn't make sense. So some of y'all are thinking, what are you even talking about? But us old people remember, because back in the day, uh, we had this thing called pen pals. Anybody remember that? Uh, where you wrote a, how creepy is this? You wrote a letter to a total stranger, and they wrote back, okay? That was pen pals. And back in the day, um, they used to have that as assignments in school every once in a while. And, and the old story talks about these two people um, that joined a pen pal club at a library, okay? And they were given a name, and, and uh, finally she got up a nerve, and so she wrote the letter to this guy. And this guy gets this letter, and he's kind of impressed that, you know, hey, a lady wrote me a letter. And so he's, he's reading the letter, and then he kind of responds back to the letter. And then they just kind of, you know, that's going on and on. And one letter comes, another letter. And, you know, they pretty soon they've lost count. They're writing letters back and forth over and over. And then the day finally comes, they both kind of realize at the same time, I think we have fallen in love. He's got these two people never met each other. And, and now because of the letters, they've developed this affinity for each other. Now leave it to the guy to suggest this. Hey, could you send me a picture? <laughs> and she said, love is not based on physical appearance. And he lied and said, yeah, I know you're right. And, and so they agreed they wouldn't send pictures, but they would meet up. And they picked an airport in a city. They said, let's go into the city and show up at the airport and let's meet each other at the airport. And so they said, well, how are we going to know each other? Never seen each other. Now, you young people are going, duh, did you look at Facebook? Did you look at their Instagram? They didn't have any of that, okay? And so how are we going to know? And she came up with a great idea. She goes, I'll tell you what. Before you get there, buy a red rose and just put it on your shirt. I'll put it on my blouse and just walk around the airport and we see somebody got a red rose. That's it. 
And so the guy shows up at the airport, he's excited. And she shows up and she's excited. And, and he's walking around, you know, walking down the terminal looking for somebody with a red rose. And he kind of looks lost, you know, he's kind of doing this and everything. And, and a lady comes up to him and says, are, are, you, are you lost? He said, no, I'm not lost, I'm looking for somebody. And, and uh, have you found her? I found her, I don't know where she's at. And, and the lady just keeps talking and, and says, well, you know, here, I'll help you out a little bit. And you know, here's my name, what's your name? And, and and they start talking back and forth. And, and ladies, I'm not, I'm not trying to offend you at any, any at all. Okay, please forgive me for this. But guys, we know, okay? She was a looker, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. I mean, she had it going on. And so she's having this conversation and he's talking back to her. And pretty soon they just start talking about other things. And after a while, they're kind of talking about all kinds of things, you know? And, and it's getting a little bit awkward, a little uncomfortable for him. And, and, and the only thing that she's missing is she don't have a rose. And she reaches in her purse and she hands him a hotel key and says, how about we meet there at eight tonight? He told at his wedding months later that when the key was offered, it was everything in the world in him to say no to that. And he, the reason he said it is because almost every man in the world, he's wrong about that, but almost every man in the world would have jumped at that. I mean, nobody's gonna know. Nobody will ever know. But he couldn't get the rose out of his mind. He looked at her and said, I'm sorry. I'm looking for somebody else. He turned around, he walked away. He started to walk down this, this terminal. He knows this lady in the crowd and she saw him and she was walking to him. And, and the more she walked to him, kind of the, the, a little bit faster she was walking and he's, he's looking at her and um, he look, you know, we just said no to a looker. Okay, let me describe her, okay? You ever seen those gals last minute trip at 10.30 to Walmart and back? Okay, that's her, all right? No makeup, hair, bad day, you know, just kind of nothing going on there whatsoever. And a doggone rose on her blouse. And she comes up to him and she puts her hand out and and he puts his hand out and shakes her hand and takes his other arm and pulls her in and sweet whispers into her ear, I'm so glad to finally meet you, my darling. And when she heard that, she pushed him back and she said, Jack, I don't know what's going on. This is weird. But that lady back there paid me $100 to put this rose on and come up and shake her hand. He turned around and there was the looker. And she said, you passed the test. <laughs> but would you pass it? Would I pass it? Would you do what others might not do? Would you keep the mercy of God so strongly in your heart that pleasing him is more important than pleasing yourself in that minute? And our circumstances that we will face the rest of this week will be different. Your circumstance will be different than my circumstance. My circumstance will be different than yours. But those circumstances will 
happen and there will be many of them. Will you choose to be right or will you choose to be popular? Will you raise your hand with the other nine? His mercy deserves our holiness. Father, I pray for the church. God, if you would allow me just um, a few minutes, a few seconds here. Not to preach or teach right now, not to do anything that's been going on the last several minutes, just to have a, a moment of honesty with you on behalf of our family here. And I'm so worried about the kingdom family where we have weakened to the point of following the pattern of the world. Christians today will stand and support things that Christian people have never stood and supported them. And we all get caught up in some aspect of the longing to be among the nine. And today we find out in our study that that must break your heart. And so I'm not sure how it will apply to my life tomorrow, but I know it will. Because the devil is a roaring lion, constantly looking for somebody to devour. And I know it will happen with my friends in this room right now. And when it does, will you please remind us of your mercy? That you love us anyway that you will not turn away. And would you please allow that mercy to inspire us and to remind us to be different, no matter the cost, to be different so that you can be pleased. In the name of Jesus, I pray.